Welcome to the Teaching a Rockstar podcast, and on today's episode, we have Evan Whitehead. All right, now listen, I've already, uh, I was up early this morning thinking to myself, um, you know, every, you know, I, I don't do much research, but I think about, I look at you know, how we're going to do the intro, and I started looking at the list that this guy's got going on, I'm like, how am I going to talk about all that? So here's <laughs> what I'm going to do, man, I'm going to bring him in, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him kind of go down the list briefly of all the stuff he has going on, and uh, looking forward to this one, this is... Um, um, this is one of those that um, you know. I mean, with the, this guy has such such a, a varied the, the depth and the breadth of all he has going on in education. It's exciting, man. So here we go, Teaching a Rockstar podcast. Let's get this thing started with Evan Whitehead. Let's do this. This is the Teach Like a Rockstar podcast with Hal Bowman. All right, here's a quick shout-out from our sponsor, the Boston Scally Company. I have found the absolute best caps on the Internet at bostonscally.com. The Boston Scally Company is the online purveyor of caps with the most attitude. Some people refer to them as a flat cap or a Gatsby or an Ivy cap, but the cap everyone is really looking for is the traditional Boston Scally cap. Founded by the son of a lifelong educator, the Boston Scally Company designs and sells caps that capture the unique culture of the Boston people with an authentic style that is filled with blue-collar sarcasm, rugged integrity, and a truckload of attitude. Pick up the authentic Boston Scally cap at bostonscally.com. The Teach Like a Rockstar podcast with Hal Bowen. You have got to explain to me... How do you have so much going? Like, I got two things on my bio. And, like, I'm looking at you. I was like, man, I got to get my, I got to get a little bit more busy in my life. <laughs> oh, man, man. Hey, let, man. let's, let's start. It looks like you, like, so, like, you have, like, an everyday, everyday gig at the central office. Yes, sir. That's correct. All right. Let's start with that. Like, what do you got going on there? So, um, I am director of special services. Uh, I've been in central office administration for 10 years now. And uh, special services director is pretty much everything under the kitchen sink. Oftentimes jobs that other folks either don't want to do or historically um, have not um, been able to do. And really what I what I cover is um, special education services, Mm -hmm. um, English learners, um, Title One director, also uh, 504 plans, health services and McKinney Vento and also early childhood education is all under my department. All the stuff that, like, like I'm wondering, like, in that job description, when you first signed up for that gig, did you know it was all that? No, I did not. I did not actually. <laughs> actually, um, about ten years ago, when I when I started in central office administration, I thought special services was just special education, which is uh, yeah. which is my background, and uh, I I quickly learned on the job that uh, it it encompassed all these other. Um, programs and services. However, for me, that was great because it was a lot of my passions, a lot of my interests. So it kind of fell right into my lap um, in doing so. You know what? Uh, I have a couple of friends that has the exact same title here in Texas. And um, one, I was talking to her, she's on the job maybe a couple of months and mm-hmm. was coming from a giant high school director of special education. And now she's at a, at a district with a few high schools and she's listing that same list that you have. And I told her, I said, hey, based on my experience, do you want me to tell you where job really is? And she goes, okay, what? I said, your job really is to try and not to get this district sued. That's what yeah, your 100%. job is. <laughs> 100%. That's the whole job, man. Yeah. And then 
and then the other person I was about to tell you about is uh, she is also in a smaller district, and she has the exact same title. The, I mean, a laundry list. And the, one day, I was there when the superintendent was introducing all the leadership at the central office level, and he got to her, and she, he said that um, everything that you don't know how to do in your job, that's what she does. <laughs> and I'm not sure exactly what that is, but we're going to keep her around. That, right. that was it. For sure, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Hey, how, how did you get there from, uh, did, did you show up from a campus or were you, were you teaching the class? Man, principal? man brother, you know, um, I've been in education for over 20 years. Yep. Um, I actually started this my 22nd and I had a unique path um, to getting into education. It's not something that I thought I would, I would start, thought I would begin. Um, and ironically, um, it's something I ended up fell, falling in love with. Um, I started as a crisis interventionist and a teacher assistant paraprofessional in a therapeutic day school. So for all those that do not know what that is, that's uh, me. Yeah. A therapeutic day school and for special education are for the students that have IEPs receiving special education services, typically um, with a disability category of emotional, emotional disturbance or behavioral disability. And because they, they cannot, receive the support in their home school, whether it's high school, middle school, they have to go to an alternative setting that's more intensive. Mm. So oftentimes these are students with, um, with pretty extreme external behaviors. Um, so it could be aggressive behaviors, violence, et cetera, or it could be extreme internal behaviors such as deep depression, anxiety, in which they may want to harm themselves or others because of their disability. Yeah, I know there's a couple of schools I've worked with um, that sound like that. And one of them, I know that they uh, they bus kids in on Monday and they send them home on Friday. Mm -hmm. And so they spend the night. Right. Well, yeah, that's that's, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the local school districts do not have the support of the continuum of services for those students. So the only option is for those students to go other places. So I started in with that and I um, had taken a. Uh, a short hiatus from my from my um, bachelor's degree, and uh, I decided to um, wanted to work. And my mom, um, who I'm so thankful for, was working in an alternative school for students with autism. And she said, "You know what? Um, one of our schools is hiring." She didn't tell me what it was, what type of school it was. She said, "You've always been great with kids. I think you should go apply." So I walked in cold, had no idea what it was, got hired. And I, on, on the first week that I worked there, yeah. it was very, very deep to me and it made a, it resonated with me. And because it was a, it was a school in which if the students are going to harm themselves or others, you have to manage that. So we were trained in, in what, what most, fo- most folks are familiar with as CPI, crisis prevention intervention. And um, I had to do a physical management, a physical hold on the first week I was there yeah. um, on the job. And I can tell you, brother, it was... Um, it's something that still sticks with me today because as an adult, you never want to have to physically manage a child. I don't care how big, how small, how old they are. At the end of the day, it's still a child. And if people tell you that it doesn't affect them and it doesn't have an impact on them when they have to use their physical strength as an adult to restrain a child or hold them or, or just protect them for that, they're lying to you. Because that first experience was so profound to me that I never wanted to have to do that again. So the way in which I attacked education from that standpoint continued to be building relationships, 
building rapport. So then I could have a relationship to help um, reduce the likelihood of that happening. And that's really what it's about. It's about being able to de-escalate and not have to go to a physical, um, you know, situation. However, um, you know, I think that 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 rooted into me so that I was able to do that moving forward. And I've and I've adapted that to every area of my professional career, whether I'm in the classroom, whether I'm working with families and parents, even as an administrator, working with my staff, making those connections, building those relationships and putting deposits of social capital in so that when a crisis does come up, I can take a withdrawal. They can take a withdrawal without it becoming personal and being really damaging to the overall culture, climate, and the students and staff and the families we serve. You know what, man? You know, just listen to all that. One, one, one of the things that makes me think, when people ask me about my experiences in the profession, in the classroom, and I, you know, I always say, man, I'm not sure I was ever great at much of anything, but one thing I felt like I was really, really good at was not taking things personally. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that alone... You know, I mean, that just that one tiny thing has prevented so much exhaustion and stress mm-hmm. and anxiety for both me and kids and their parents. And how many times have I seen, you know, in a, in, in, in a school setting where someone doesn't have that same um, mindset and they take it all personally? And we're talking, this kid is nine and you're taking mm-hmm. it personally from a nine-year-old man. Mm-hmm. Like he's supposed to act that way. Look at his life. Look at his story. Of course yes. he behaves that way. But when you see that that interaction that back and forth the screaming back and forth and and engaging with a child because of taking a person the anger and the emotion that's built up within the adult man i'm not you know it's it's always like i wonder i watch it i wonder where do you even begin on how to counsel an educator right right you know um the work that I'm doing right now currently um, with Dr. Ruby Payne and um, her newest book in training, Emotional Poverty, and it talks about reducing violence, anger and anxiety in the classroom. Um, one of the one of the topics that's discussed within the book and also the training is called the emotional dance in the classroom. Exactly what you're talking about, because just as you talked about that invisible backpack, so to speak, that children bring. Yep. We forget adults have the same backpack that they bring in their briefcase, their purse, their bag. Right. And it's and it's all the interactions you've had over your lifetime, all the people that you've come in contact with, positive or negative. And if you can't deal with those things and you haven't had the ability to navigate that, it manifests itself in interactions with students, families and also your colleagues. Yeah. You know, when I said I wasn't good at a few things, like that's one thing I'm not good at. I'm I'm completely self-aware. And that is um, providing grace to the educator because of their invisible backpack. In my mind, I don't know why, like I always go into this protection mode of the kid and I'm focused on the kid and their story. But I forget like way, way too often that that adult, that they have a story too. And you're right, man. Right. They have millions of experiences across the course of their lifetime that triggers all different kinds of emotion. And, you know, in my life, in my work, that, that's one thing I'm trying to do a way better job at is providing grace and recognize that that as well. For sure. For sure. You know, um, it's also one of the things that I have looked at to try to work on as well. And I'll talk about that a little bit later is, is, you know, the social emotional development, learning, emotional wellness, um, you know, the self-care that's needed for adults as well. Because if you don't take care of yourself 
If you're not the best self you can, you can't be the best you can for others, for your family, your friends, the students you serve and the families you serve and the folks you lead. You can't do that. So understanding that, figuring that out, um, you know, um, definitely is important. And I got some tips I want to share with the folks out there as well, kind of what guides me to do that and also what I try to carry over as well. But, um, you know, the, before you go on, man, like that right there, you know, because, you know, we, we always have that saying that comes to us um, on different four. There's like a theme and variations on the, on the same thing. And that is, you know, a teacher cannot give away that which they do not have. Sorry. And I get it. And, and I love it. And I believe it. Like, I truly believe the, the, the educator in the classroom ultimately is the ceiling of, of, of the success that we can achieve in our classroom. Like that's, they, they are the limiting factor for sure. And I believe it. And so like those tips is, I mean, that's like perfect. That's exactly like what I know, what I need you, because well, I spend, you know, my work, I spend so much time on the, the, the SEL of the kid, you know, and, and that's only half the equation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know the educator, the other the other side of the equation, that is I th- think a, an area where there's just not enough information out there. I agree. I agree. You know, um, so kind of fast forward from when I was in the classroom during that as a paraprofessional and, and a crisis interventionist. Um, I went back to school because I, I wanted to really make an impact in the classroom. So I became a special education teacher, um, and most of my training during my undergrad that I did in terms of my classroom value of observations, um, in terms of the, um, the, 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 uh, pre-teacher work that I did, um, was in urban environments, actually in the city of Chicago and, um, Chicago public schools. Um, and then after that, when I had to do my student teaching, I went to another urban environment, changed in the graphics with, students with a lot of needs, right? Um, You know, definitely when you talk about, you know, what I always mention are risk and protective factors, right? Risk factors are those environmental pieces that, that, you know, create a situation in which um, the likelihood of students being successful, whether it's in school or whether it's in life, um, you know, are increased such as, um, you know, single parent families, such as, um, you know, violence, crime, um, uh, such as um, areas like, wow, you know, just just the sheer fact that unemployment, you know, is there and then the cycles that it created. And then when you look at protective factors, those are things such as, um, you know, stable families, functional families, health care, um, you know, access, you know, and opportunities. Um, also, you know, and when you look at that, you can compare certain communities that don't have as many protective factors, but have more risk factors and you see the outcomes. So oftentimes, you know, in terms of, in terms of that, a lot of that training was good, was good for me because it allowed me to understand that and navigate that as well. So when I started teaching, I wanted to teach and make connections and contact and also be there for folks that traditionally may not have someone like myself that can help provide Though that support help provide those resources, help them navigate and understand that as well. So in the classroom, I went to areas that like that, that I wanted to make an impact. Um, then moving on, um, I went to um, another district in which I was um, doing classroom teaching for special education, but also I was um, community outreach coordinator. 
and that and that encompassed doing um, programs, supports, services for um, Latino families. Um, in the first program that we had, we had um, a Saturday program where we had 300 families every Saturday in which we provided free transportation, free childcare, English classes and citizenship classes. And once a month we had a guest speaker and it was all free and was really part of a true grassroots community outreach effort because of changing demographics. And then um, my other role was to work with um, other typically marginalized groups, specifically African-American, low income, doing the same thing as well, um, creating programs, services, supports, but also working with the students with that. And on top of that, it was my first true experience digging deep and working with educators, my colleagues and other staff and helping them understand and navigate how to work with folks from different backgrounds and understand that and what does that mean? So as I carried that work into um, moving on to central office, it kind of fit into the umbrella of what I do in special services, really looking at equity, diversity, cultural competency, and how do we help um, bridge that gap so all students can be successful, all students can feel like they're welcome, parents can feel that they're welcomed, and also so that staff members feel comfortable and have a safe space to say, I don't know, I don't understand something, right? Without yeah. feeling that they're gonna be attacked. You know, and I think that's that's important because you know, I just wanna say, you know, you know, like you know, it's been great to to meet you. You know, we we I I, I reached out to you because of the great conversation you had with uh, Brother Vernon Wright, you know, yeah. on your on, on your show and you start and you all had a great dialogue talking about how people can be connected, even though they don't have the same backgrounds, you know, they're not the same race, ethnicity, religion, but when there's a connectedness, a shared connectedness, what that means, how you can move forward. And the conversation that really resonated with me was when you were talking about changing demographics and how much that has an impact on communities and that if people don't feel safe and they don't feel comfortable or they, or they can't ask questions or they just don't know, right. When we don't tap into that and look at it as a way to help learn what can happen, right? Folks feel uncomfortable. Folks leave. Teachers leave. Parents feel a certain way. They, you know, you start having these conversations about them, us, we, them, you know, and it, and it just creates a barrier all because most oftentimes they're not. Uh, we are afraid to talk about what we don't know and ask questions. You know, that man, that's so true. That I, I can't tell you how many sessions I sat in when I was in, in these different schools that had these changing demographics and where I would be compelled or, or someone would be compelled to, you know, raise a hand, ask a question and, and speak specifically about, you know, you know, now the, our, our kids are pr predominantly, you know, in one school was, uh, you know, black kids that come from poverty. Mm -hmm. And and immediately, like you can tell, you're on the thin ice now. Like you know, like this is going to be a racist. Con well, it, isn't it racist if we don't talk about it? Like, <laughs> like what do you do? What do you like? That's the fact. That's what we have in our school. Why can't we say it? Right. And then, or when we had um, a lot of uh, kids coming from Mexico and Central America and South America. This is Texas, so a lot of them. I mean, there's you know a couple dozen that enroll every day. And to specifically talk about um, the diversity and, like you said, equity and cultural competency. Like, I don't know anything, man. Like, like, how come we can't talk about that? And it feels almost as if we have gone backwards. It's like 
Like, yeah, like Ruby was talking, didn't Ruby write this book like almost 20 years ago? Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> what, why can't we go read that book again? Like, right, right. Now it's almost, you know, um, it's frowned upon to talk about some of the differences that we have in our kids. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, um, share, share a couple quick stories about myself personally and why this is so important to me. Um, you know, I grew up in a diverse community because it was a college town. So I was born there, lived there till about sixth grade. And a lot of the students that I went to school with and a lot of my friends were children of international students. So growing up, I had, I had very diverse friends. You know, we were all playing sports together. We're hanging out, going to the park, riding bikes together. You know, we're in school, we're in classes. And, um, you know, it, it was great because I got a chance to learn a lot about different backgrounds, cultures, just by having authentic experiences. Um, one of my best friends was from Korea. Another, another one of my one of my good friends was from Malaysia. Another one was from Nepal. Another one from the Philippines. Another one from Nigeria. Um, you know, and then I had my other friends that 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 were African American, black, and my other friends that were white as well. And it was great because we all went to school together. We all learned. But I can tell you something, Hal. Oftentimes, it's the adults that impact the children and change that. Right. Yeah. So when right. And and when I and in my first experience with racism. Came from one of my best friends who was white. And, I, and this is a this is a something that that sticks with me today. And, you know, oftentimes we may think, oh, someone may have may use the N word and said something racially. This is this is what my best friend told me. He had come back from a weekend at his dad. His parents were, were divorced and um, we were going to play after school on a Monday. And he came by my house and he said, I can't play with you anymore. And I said, why? He said, I can't play with you anymore because my dad said that your dad is black. Let me rewind that again so I can say it again. He, he said, I can't play with you anymore. We can't be friends because your dad is black. Not right. me, right? Right. So think about the social nuances as, you know, I was probably yeah. eight, eight years old trying to figure that out because I'm thinking, well, I'm just like my dad, you yeah. know, and I, and I asked my dad about that. And, and that's my was my first lesson on how the impact of adults can be so powerful on children and that children, especially adults that they care for, look up to, etc., they will follow them and in, in, in whatever they say, you know, blindly because they're innocent, you know. And that was my first that was my first experience that 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 opened my eyes to how how ugly bias and um, and just prejudice can be to even innocence, right? Children that that don't know anything else. Um, so that that was critical, you know. Um, Another another part was when I went to high school, um, I had some I had some great, great mentors. And um, I was one of those kids that was in the changing demographic. We had moved to um, a more affluent suburb outside the city of Chicago and um, very few African-American folks, but growing, growing population, growing Latino population. And the schools didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to talk to us. They didn't know how to interact with us. And I had. There was a guidance counselor and a special education teacher. I, 
I did not have either one of those. He was not the, the, the counselor was not my counselor. I was not in special ed. She was not my teacher. But they started a group called Cultural Awareness. So this is going back three decades. Okay, I'm dating myself a little bit. Um, and and basically all it was, it was a safe place for students of color, African-American, Latino, students that spoke different languages to just come together and talk about their experiences and what that was in terms of racial and cultural identity development and how they see themselves amongst each other, how they see themselves in their own ethnic racial group and also how the majority society sees themselves. So it gave us a chance to just kind of vent because, you know, my parents didn't have that experience because they didn't go to the school that I went to. So they couldn't tell me. Um, my friends were coming from different places. And oftentimes the only time we talked was during a common free time would be cafeteria probably, you know, during lunchtime. We talk about it and people say, well, you know, why are you hanging with that group only or that group only? But they're forgetting that was the first time as adolescents we're finding, we're learning who we are as ourselves. We're trying to find ourselves and we're trying to truly figure out where's our place in society um, and how can we be better and how can, and how can we help other people? So that was, that was great for me. That was really eye opening. And then the last, the last quick story I'm going to say is, is, is that um, my, my, my own family, my own nuclear family, is is diverse we're multicultural um you know my my children my, my children are are biracial my wife my, my my wife is comes from a white italian american background and um very traditional and uh before i could marry her i had to ask my father-in-law for permission now mind you i'd never spoken to this man before never talked yeah. to him and um she she said you know you're gonna have to ask my dad for permission to marry me i said like what this is you know, I, she said, no, if not, if you don't get his blessing, we can't get married. I said, OK, fine. So I met her mother. I love my mother-in-law. She's a beautiful person, sweet lady. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I love her so much. I met her and we, and we had a great relationship, but I never met her husband, who is now my father-in-law. And uh, we met for coffee and he sat me down, Hal, just like you and I were talking. And he said, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. And, I, and he's a straight shooter. He doesn't hold anything back. I love him for this. He said, I don't really agree with this whole interracial mixing, dating, et cetera, marriage. I don't like it. It's not, it's not, it's not where I come from, my background. You know what? But my daughter loves you, so I'm going to give you a chance. And I told him, I said, you know what? I appreciate your honesty because most people aren't going to be honest and say that. But I said, yeah. give me a chance. I will prove to you that I'm a, that I'm a good person. I have a good heart. You know, um, I'm going to take care of your daughter, protect her, you know, at every single possibility I can. And I'm going to show you by my actions, not by my skin color, but my actions that regardless of what I look like, I'm still a good person. And I'm going to tell you how almost 20 years later, you would never think he and I had had that had that conversation. We are the best of friends. Yeah. Um, he 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 obviously loves my grand his grandchildren, my children. My daughter was his first great grandchild and the oldest granddaughter and loves her, loves my son. Um, and, and I truly believe that had he not been authentic with me and I and I've been authentic with him about that and offering that opportunity, we wouldn't be where we are today. And we laugh about that, about that story, because you would never know that. You would never know that conversation happened, but it did. But it was an entry point. 
And I say that because it's the same entry point that we can have in schools, on campuses, yeah. right? And, and folks we interact with about that particular issue. We all have bias. We all have, you know, experiences that are different from others. However, it's, it's how do we have that authentic experience enough to say, you know what, I want to learn. I want to be better. I want to do better. How can I do better? And in doing so, we also offer up opportunities for others to do that so they can feel safe, so they can feel as though that it's, that it's important and that we cherish their ideas and want to learn more from them so that we can all be, in, be interconnected. Sure. You know, I, I think you're right, man. It all starts with that conversation. When I was, um, when I was still in the classroom, um, this is years, I don't even think they have anymore. This is probably a couple of decades ago. They had, and here in Houston, Texas, had the Teen Summit on Race Relations. Mm. And what was that was, was all the schools would load the bus up. You would find a, the, the, it was a bus of diversity. You try to find one of everything you got in the school. And take the kids and to a central location at the convention center, and then we split them up in the groups. And then all the sponsors would host a circle, just a conversation, and had some um, questions on how to facilitate conversation. And I remember the first year I went, and we're just um, you know just holding. I'm asking questions, and we get to a kid that came from a private school. There's two of them in the group, and they both had the same khakis on, the same light blue button-down shirt, and it was something about um, you know black students. And they and they both looked at each other and said, "Well, we don't we don't know any." And we're like, and the whole all, all the kids are like, "What? Like, we we don't we don't have any in the school." And like, wait, <laughs> you don't know a black kid? No. Have you ever known? No. And then. Then the conversation became it was it became funny at that point and fun because like these kids could not wait to explain mm. their culture to these kids who have no mm. idea, and then that when I, it was a moment I realized you know what it was for me it was making that transition from simply uh, uh, accepting being accepting of differences and moving into celebrate like finding and searching for differences and celebrating those differences and digging down deep because that's what the kids love when they find something that's so dramatically different than what they do in their family and their culture they love it and then I took that back to the school and started doing it with my classes and oh my you talk about bringing a classroom family together when you have those kind of real authentic honest conversations where it's safe and it can be fun and silly like you do what you eat what for thanksgiving dinner you know and then it, but I did I after a couple of years I had the moment where I thought well why don't we do this with adults mhm mhm like it's the same thing but I think with adults I mean they're more they're just scared of uh, offending someone or uh, being honest that they don't know. I think that's probably it. It's the fear of admitting, I don't know. And I'm afraid to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's it. I think, and unfortunately society has created a situation in which if someone says they don't know and someone, you know, they, they, they feel as though from, from what my experience have been and folks that I've talked to work with, um, provided support in this area is that saying that they don't know something and feeling that they don't know something, they feel if they say the wrong thing, they may sound or or be labeled as racist or, yeah. or have a stigma attached to them. So what happens is they're afraid to talk. So now, now we have people that are isolating themselves in terms of their feelings, um, their ideas, they're they're wanting to learn, and then they don't do that. And and it's interesting, especially in our field, right? We're always pushing students and having the philosophy of lifelong learning, right? 
But then when it comes to the elephant in the room and topics like this, right? Yeah. Right. Right. We, we it's it's hard for us to be lifelong learners. It's hard. It's hard for us to come from a growth mindset. We think about that in the technical side, and you know, in our content area, we want to be better. We want to be better. But when it comes to subjects like this that are at the core of what we do, right? Because every school district, everywhere I've ever provided support, consulted, training, whatever, you see it nationally that. The demographics are changing, right? Everywhere there is there like now, and there and it's quickly, and it doesn't. It's not just race, ethnicity. It's also socioeconomics. Yep. Right. So now you have you have, and then you have you know this thing that exists, and what we forget in education is this: everyone has a certain skill set, right? A certain a certain amount of skills, and then uh, a certain. Uh, behaviors that allows them to survive, right? And to be successful and to thrive. And when we come into the public education system, we take that for granted and we hold a certain expectations to students, families, even colleagues or people that we hire that may not be familiar with our particular culture and the climate and the, and the invisible rules that we have. And we hold them to these expectations without teaching them first, right? We would never do that with math, with reading, with another right. subject area. We would never say, okay, here's here's a test which is throw you right in and take the final, right? What we what, what what we do is we teach, we allow them to work on a little bit on themselves, right? Then we assess, then we reteach, then we assess and we reteach again. Then we finally do something comprehensive to say, okay, where are you at? But we don't punish Right. We don't yeah. punish. What what do we do? What ends up happening if we have students that are coming from different communities, they transfer in, they move in, et cetera. If there are certain rules that are written and unwritten, we assume they know. And then as soon as they don't do something that we say, oh, well, they should know that we consequence them. Right. And then we yeah. have this this long list of consequences and we have the code of conduct. But we forget what's unwritten in the code of conduct is the culture of what you do in that school, in that campus, in that district, that the only way you know that if you've been there for a while. We don't teach that. The same thing with educators. You know, something that that's very near and dear to my heart is the lack of diversity amongst educators, teachers, staff, administrators. And that means everything socioeconomics, race, ethnicity, religion, language. And what happens is when we hire those folks, we say, great, we have someone who's from this background and maybe they speak this language. And then what do we do? We expect them to be the champion and do everything for that particular group, right? On top of their day job, right? And then the other part is we forget that maybe they still need support too, right? If it's their first year teaching or the first year in the district, to put that on them as a lot, not saying that they can't do it or don't want to do it, but pacing of that and allowing them time to do that, but also helping them grow, helping them support, seeing if they're okay. Because for a lot of for a lot of folks, you may be the only one that looks like you, not only in the classroom, but also amongst your staff. Sure. So right. So how do we support everyone so everyone can learn from each other so that ultimately we can be the best that we can for students and families?
It really, man. It, it, like I keep saying it, but it really comes down to uh, creating that place. You know, I think it is, man. If we just build a foundation of, of love, I, I, for yes, like sir. we all love this job. We love this field. We love these kids. We love our school family we're creating. And let's be completely authentic and vulnerable in the moment and just admit, man, I don't know. Right. And, you know, for me, it's always easier, for, I guess, because I have so much experience with it. It's always easier for kids. I can remember um, I had a, a, a couple of girls move in there from El Salvador. And they're twin girls. And, I mean... They very little English was uh, speaking, and I was te- I was uh, trying to teach biology. I almost said teaching, but I was like trying to teach biology with the, and um, and I remember just being. We created this relationship. It was just fun and silly, and they would laugh at me because they. I, I would I would say that they were El Salvadorian, and they would make them laugh. So, and they didn't correct me because I thought it was so funny. I didn't say Salvadorian. I said El Salvadorian. <laughs> so they would make fun of me, and when I thought that, and then I realized what they're making fun of, and I corrected. But, but then I didn't correct myself because I loved that they would thought I was silly. And then we just had this this moment where because because we created the foundation, and they knew I loved them. And as all right, listen, you can ask me, school's hard, man, because you guys don't know the rules. And so you ask me anything you want, but I'm going to ask you anything I want because I need to know about you and your life and your culture. And I, I feel silly um, sometimes with some of my questions, but, you know, because I don't know anything about El Salvador. And what what it did was it it created just um, just an easy relationship, like easy conversation, and just because we built a, a, on a foundation of uh, more than acceptance. For sure, for sure. Because it goes beyond that, right? Accepting is okay, but, yeah. but how can we go beyond that, right? Because it's it's it has to be there. It has to be authentic. It has to be something that we say, yeah, we accept you, but now let me learn more so I can be a better person, Can I be, so I can be a better friend, a better colleague, right? And that people... I have found that if you are authentic and genuine, it comes from the right place where, where it's the heart, right? A lot of excuses go to the wayside and also people are so much more willing to learn from you and with yeah. you. You know, it's, it's, it's so critical. Um, a lot of my work that I do now at the central office level um, is working with families and parents, right? Oftentimes, there's a disconnect between the school and the families because the families have one idea or one experience about what school was when they were when they were going to school where their school was and then what's what's happening with their child and and especially I re- recognize it in the area of special education when it comes to having those individual education plan meetings the IEP meetings the annual reviews three year reevaluations because oftentimes like like we talked about earlier right the invisible backpack of the adults yeah what are the parents coming into those meetings about with their experiences right and especially when you are talking about special education as it relates to students from diverse backgrounds and settings, right? Because now you have all these other variables built in. Not only are we talking about disability, but we're also talking about disability amongst students of color, families of color, students with um, diverse language experiences, religions. And now the whole idea in in the cultural aspect of what education means, what schooling means, and also idea of a disability has all these other constructs that are personal to everyone else because of their experiences. And, um, you know, how do we navigate that? And I, and I work with parents a lot and families a lot. And philosophically, as, a, as, doing, as my role as director of special education in districts over the years, my job has always been, how do I create that safe environment? How do I help bridge the gap? How do I meet parents where they are, right? 
the meeting in special ed's already scary enough. It's intimidating. You got 10 or 12 educators talking to all this educator ease, as I say, using all these acronyms, right? right. And then you have the, and you have the parents walk in and yes, we know on paper that they're part of the team, right? However, they walk in, they've maybe they've never even met these folks, right? And then all of a sudden, these educators were talking and we're using these acronyms and we're using, you know, multisyllabic words and and we're and we're throwing these 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 phrases around. And then we forget, wow, what if the parents have never heard these expressions? What if they, they're not familiar with school? What if they don't even like school because of what happened right. to them, right? And then what do we do? We make we make an environment where there's even more angst, there's even more stress. And then on top of that, we say, oh, by the way, your child has this problem, this problem, this problem, and this problem, right? So I always go back and say, how can we make sure we, we create an environment and build rapport with parents first, right? Get them in the door, meet them where they're at, go to their house, whatever it need, whatever we need to do to make a connection and make them feel comfortable and safe so they can be a true part of their team. So it's authentic because if not, we're always going to have this us versus them, right? And then you talk about sensitive situations where there's a stigma involved, right? right. And then there could be another stigma involved because of their racial or ethnic background or socioeconomic mm -hmm. status, religion, or even now we talk about what is their citizenship status, right? You, you put all those things together and then it's like, what are we doing to try to peel some of those layers back and make folks feel comfortable, make them feel like they're part of the team, make them feel like, you know what, I'm welcomed here and it's okay. And then I can feel safe as a parent, right? of allowing my child to be with these with these adults and i feel that my child is going to be protective they're going to be they're going to they're going to be safe and they're going to get what they need yeah you know for for a moment that you're speaking and i was thinking like it's almost as if you're going to go you know you're told okay you're going to india and you're going to be on a professional cricket team and like i don't speak the language mm -hmm. i don't know who the players are I don't know what their roles are on the field. I don't know what this equipment is we're using. I don't have the, the jargon that they use in part. But then it's so much, it's real, it's that, but it's that 10 times so much worse because when you put in the stigma or something they feel like they're not a part of because of race or socioeconomic status or, you know, like, like you said, even um, citizenship, anything, it makes it, it's tenfold worse than that. It is, it is. And, you know, our job, as adults is to make sure the students feel safe yeah. and to also make sure that the staff members are comfortable with working with those students as well. So, you know, what I always think about, which goes back to, you know, what are we doing for adults in our buildings? How do we support them is, you know, there's this thing called multi-tiered system of support, right? Which used yeah. to be RTI, PBIS, et cetera. But going back to what are we doing for adults and social emotional learning, what about the MTSS for adults, right? Because the same rules apply where, you know, you talk about 80% of the students are going to get what they need. They're going to be successful. 10 to 15% are going to need a little, little extra more, a little more push, strategy, support, academic or behavior. Then that 1% to 5%, they're going to need complete wraparound support. Could be special education courses. Could be a Section 504 plan. Could be outside support from counselors, social service agencies, could be agencies to help the families, right? Yep. But we forget about the adults. So it goes back the same way. How do we apply that to adults? That's something I've always done as well. And everything that I do as an educator, as a leader, I think about a three-pronged approach, students, 
staff and families. We can apply the same MTSS to staff and families because why? We know that 80% of the time, most people are going to do what you say, what you ask, what you need. They're not going to need much prodding support, etc. But you're going to have that 10 to 15% they're going to need a little bit extra at some point in time. They're going to need a little extra more. They may need someone to kind of coach them in a certain way. They may need some consulting. They may need a mentor in their lives. They may need someone from the outside. They may need some, some mental health support. They may need, may need some, some physical support from a doctor, right? Then you got that one to 5%. You may do everything possible within the capacity that you have to do. But what you have within your building and your campus and your district may not be enough. So you got to go outside. And that's, sure. where the, that's where the true partnership comes into play. And how do we break that down? Right. Because I may be the best math teacher there is. And I know my content front, back, side, left, forward, et cetera. But if I can't make relationships and build relationships with students, with my colleagues, with families, I'm not going to be successful. So how do we how do we then, you know, scale that down? How do we then look at providing interventions, supports, and differentiate, right, the professional development for staff in the affective domain. We're always pushing, you know, content, content, skill, content. But what about this, what we're talking about, Hal? What we're talking about is a social, emotional, understanding, cultural diversity, equity, right? How do we begin to do that and say, okay, we're going to make sure everyone gets this, no matter who they are, whoever comes to our doors, what adult works with us. Then the next phase is, what about those that still need extra? How do we, what do we do? What do we need? How do we provide that for them? So then at the end of the day, it becomes systemic through our culture. And it's just not a one stop, you know, okay, we're going to do a diversity training. Come in. Oh, great. That's fine. Right. Right. But, right. but, but what happens after that person leaves? How are we building capacity to make sure that there's sustainability in the work? Right. But it takes time. It takes effort. It takes the transparency. It takes the honesty that you and I've been talking about to do that. But once we know that we have to look at our professional development side that way. And that's what folks like myself, obviously, Dr. Payne do um, folks like yourself. Right. Folks like folks like Vernon Wright. Everybody that's doing this work, we look at the person first before the content. And sure. making sure that if the person is not where they need to be, they can't be successful. So that's why I always look at that. What are we looking at the wellness? What are we looking sure that people are, are ready to do their job, being their best selves? And that goes into what I call, and I try to live by this as much as I can that has helped me in terms of my three B's. My three B's, and that's balance, boundaries, and breaks. Balance, boundaries, and breaks. So the balance is the work-life balance, right? We all have a lot to do. When you first, when you introduced me, you said, wow, you got a lot going on. Do you have your J job still? Yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a central office administrator. I do consulting. I work, you know, I, I work for AHA Process. You know, I do, I, do, um, you know, I do other coaching on the side. I also work with young people and adults, and I have my own children too, right? Yeah. So it, it's that balance. How do you find that balance? Because... If you don't balance it, somebody's going to lose out, right? You have to find a balance and you have to realize that it's that it's okay if you're balancing your life because you have to make sure you're centered, right? And you have to make sure that that you're grounded. Um, sure. You have to make sure you can do that. Um, the next B um, are boundaries. 
So oftentimes we think about boundaries are are the boundaries are other people's boundaries. I want to step on someone else's toes. I don't want to I don't want to, you know, cross their boundary. But we forget about our own personal boundaries. And do we allow others to cross our boundaries without permission? And a big part of that is with the balance, but understanding it's okay to say no. Right. We got so much on our plate at work. We got so much in our life. We got people pulling on us for this, for that. Is it okay to say no? And it is because we can't be everything for everybody, right? And we have to say no sometimes, especially in our field, right? We want to help. We're givers, right? We're fixers, right? And then when people ask us something, we don't want to say no. Why? Because we feel, oh my gosh, I can't do that. But we don't have to be educational martyrs and still have an impact, right? We, we can sure. still be there for ourselves and we can say no, right? So that, that's our boundary. Being comfortable, okay to say no. That's, that, that's the second B for boundaries. The last one is breaks. Pausing, right? Being present. Mindfulness. Being in the state where you are. Like you and I are talking right now, right? We're focusing on this interview. We're focused on this podcast. We may have other things going on, but taking a break, being present, being mindful. It's okay to do that. Pause. Look, we're busy, right? And especially in the Western world, everything's fast paced, moving, moving, moving instantaneously. However, pause, take a few minutes, take a few minutes in your day, you know, take a wellness walk, you know, on your lunch, you know what, you know, walk around the block, get outside, sure. you know, smell the fresh air, you know, look at, look at the sky, look at the trees, listen, you know, what's going on and just enjoy the moment, right? It also goes to another level is taking time off from your job to re-energize, to reboot, right? That's huge. Right, man. You 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 don't have to you don't have to go a hundred miles an hour all the time, right? The work's always gonna be there. The the people are always gonna be there. However, if you don't take time and take a break for yourself, right, it's gonna take a toll on you mentally, physically, and emotionally if you don't do that. So take the break. You can take a vacation, you can take a couple days off. You can unplug. Brother, I, I unplugged yesterday. I was I took my son to two basketball games that he that he's been wanting to watch, right? Nice. And yeah. and and typically, you know, I'm like a lot of folks. I'm on social media, I'm tweeting, I'm replying, I'm putting content out there. But you know what? I took a pause off and I even apologized to some of my folks in my PLN, even though I don't have to. But you know, I I was I was practicing mindfulness for myself because I wanted to spend time with my son and give him my attention, right? And taking a break, unplugging. So my three B's, balance, boundaries, and breaks. I live by those. They, it, it's helped me so much because I've done so much in my lifetime. I've, 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 man, I've, I went to central office, brother, when I was, in, when I was 34 years old, I became, a, I became assistant superintendent at 34. So I've been on this track and I've been moving. Hustling. But, but man, hustling, grinding, right? All the time. Yeah. But you know what I had to learn? I had to learn that to take time out for myself. Isn't it interesting how it takes a while? Like it takes some um, maturity and wisdom and yes, experiences sir. and I mean, just chronological time. Like, so like as you get older, you're like I, I would have to realize, you know, I, finally, I mean, it, maybe this year, I'm 52, man. Maybe th it was this year that I realized after I'm on the road, I do three or four or five gigs in a row. Just don't work the next day. Just stop. Right. Don't do anything yep. because I would realize I would, you know, when, when I come back, if I'm come back on a Thursday, I'm here in the office on a Friday and I might put in 10, 12, hours, but I don't get anything done. It's not, it's, and it's not good if I do get something done, but if I take just one day and just shut it down completely and do nothing like other than what you said, walk, go get some uh, healthy food and prepare my meals for the week and just, and just 
relax, then I'm so I'm just so good the next the next week after that. I'm so much better professionally, so more creative, so more resourceful just by taking a day to shut it down. For sure, for sure, man. It's you know, self-care is huge and it and it's an area that I think the education world in our field has has not brought attention to, right? We don't talk about yeah. that a lot. We don't we don't talk about that what you know, we don't talk about the teacher burnout. If we do talk about, it, we don't talk about the why, right? Right? Sure. We know what happens. We we you know, we know turnover happens in leadership positions and teaching fields, especially those that are working in those in those communities that that ask and require a lot of us, right? We wonder what happens, but it's because we often don't allow others to take time in themselves. We don't, we don't yeah. allow them to relax. We don't allow them to take time with their families. And also, we don't give ourselves permission to do it, what we need to do for ourselves as well. And it's important. It's important because we have to do it. If we truly want to be at our best, 100% for everybody, we have to make sure we take care of ourselves so that we can do that for them. You know, as as leaders, I, I think, man, it's just so important to really help people understand you know, we do a great job of talking about professional development. I mean, it, we, we talk about it a lot, and there's so much good stuff out there nowadays, especially, like you said, even with social media. Like, that's the what's one of the great things about it. I mean, this information and people have come out that we would have never found with such, they're doing such amazing things. You can find something brand new every day, and professional development is amazing. But what I, I really hope we're, we're getting to the point where people understand that professional development is limited by your personal development. Yes, sir. I mean, like what you can do and how you can do it and when where all that is, is is in direct proportion to who you are as a person and until we're better people we really can't be better professionals that's it that's it we we, we gotta work on ourselves to be better for others and that and, and yeah. that's true you know um i man it's so many things just talking to you man have just resonated you know and the things that we're talking about and and speaking of being a better person um, I want to make sure that I give some shout outs to some folks, man, that, yeah. that have been helpful for me because I'm new to Twitter. I'm new to the social media space. I've only been on for a few months, but I've met some really great people like yourself. And you've been, man, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, you know, also, you know, want to give shout outs to uh, Ruby Payne and AHA Process for sure, because, you know, being with them and in the work that Ruby does and being able to connect with others has been great. Um, uh, Nicole Biscotti over there um, at, at Biscotti, Nicole, and then Nicole Sidebottom at, 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 Mel side B um, with the edu table um, at, at the edu underscore table at Dr. Brad Johnson, um, the staff room podcast at staff podcast and my and one of my brothers who I'm just getting 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 to know who's been great. Taylor, Taylor Armstrong um, at Taylor underscore does underscore capital IT has been great um, to me. We've been reaching out. We've been talking about a lot of the same stuff, how hopefully he and I will connect to connect soon and folks follow him on Twitter. Yeah. He has some great stuff, great content. And then in, in Illinois um, here, some great superintendents that have been giving me some guidance advice since I've got on Twitter and have been open enough to help me along the road um, is Dr. Courtney Orzel um, at D R O Z E L. Dr. Monica Schroeder at M-S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R-6 and Dr. Michael Lubefeld at Mike L-U-B-E-L-F-L-D have been phenomenal. And then two people I can't forget because if, if I forget these two people, they're going to get on me. Number one, our <laughs> brother, our brother, Ruben Perez. Yeah. Oh, man, man, Ruben. Talk about, think, man, 
the irony. So just quick backstory. When Hal and I were talking about this and getting this, this ready offline, you know, um, a few weeks ago, I was co-presenting with Ruben in Alabama to the Alabama Association of, Ed of Elementary School Administrators. We were doing the, uh, the, the, the general session mm -hmm. and, and, and we're heading back to the, to, to the, to the airport after our session it went great. And uh, Ruben and I are talking, who's a phenomenal brother. He's been my mentor at AHA Process. And I told him that you and I were talking and he said, Hal Bowman? He's like, I know Hal. He said, I yeah. hey, he's like, Hal's the greatest. He's, and he <laughs> said, I knew Hal when Hal had long hair. Big hair. <laughs> so, so he's like, Hal does great work. And you know what he told me? He said, when I first met Hal, I knew he was going to be a superstar. Uh. He, said, he, said, he said he always could make connections with students and always resonated. And every time I saw him, he got better and better. And when I heard about him, I knew he was going to be a superstar. So he said, he said, make sure you, you tell Hal hello. And I got to shout out Ruben because he's been great to me. Talk about, talk about really the fact that coincidences don't happen, right? right. What are the odds of, of the three of us being connected without even meeting each other, right? And in the same room, right? He's yeah. in Houston. You know, you're in Houston. I'm in Illinois. What are the chances of that? Great person. And, and right. last but not least, I cannot forget Brother Vernon Wright, right? At the right leader. Zero apology zone. Yep. You know, I mean, this brother has been so great to me. As I said, listening to your podcast when he was on inspired me. The stuff you guys talked about helping me to say, you know what? I can get out there, you know, do this stuff, you know. I have, man, I, I just, you know, the things that he said, he's been inspiring to me. His content is right on point always. Another good brother always speaks from the heart, 100%, willing to support, has supported me in the short time that I've been doing this in this space. I have to give him a shout out because if, if it wasn't for him and it wasn't for you, I would not be here talking to you today right now. I love it, man. Here's the thing about, you know, the reason the, the No Apology Zone works is because it's like we just said earlier, it's built on a foundation of absolute authenticity and love. And when it's when it's that honest and that full of love, you're right, man. No apologies needed. None, none, you see, none. Like none when it's based on let me say whatever you want, because it's it's coming from a place of love and authenticity. For sure, Amazing. for sure. Hey, man, let me tell you a quick Ruben story. Is um, I'm not sure when the first time we actually met was, and and um, it was his years ago. But I, there's a couple of stories that really stand out with Ruben. And here's the first one: is we were at it was a district conference of student mentors. There's a program called Pals, and what Pals it stands for Peer Assistance and Leadership. And what it is, it's all juniors and seniors in the high school, and we go to elementary school and junior high campuses, elementary and junior high campuses, and each pal has a kid that they mentor, and they see him once a week. So, like, if you're in third period pals, that means, like, on third period, you're on the bus, and the bus travels to this elementary school, and then might have a second grader they see once a week at that school for 40 minutes, and we get on the bus and race back to school, and every day is a different uh, school. And it's, it's, it's an amazing program. And I know at one of our, we had a conference where all we get all the mentors together, and they go through some skills, and they learn some things, and we celebrate them, and some inspiration. And Ruben was doing a session there. And so there's probably 800, 1,000 high school kids. And this guy walks in. You would have thought, you, I mean, you would have thought, I, I, don't, I don't know who a star is, but if, like a, 
pop music star walked in. It was, kids were crying. They're circling around them. And it was, it was, I'm like, who is this guy? Like, whatever, however they feel about him, I want them to feel about me. You know, it was amazing. And then here's the other thing. So these are seniors. So, so my school, we had all seniors. And this is a couple of years uh, after that, somebody brings up Mr. Perez and music and music class. I'm not sure what he was teaching at the time and, or a song. And, and I've got like 40 kids in the class and, um, and they all start singing the song and there's like hand motions and that he had taught them. And here they are seniors a decade later, they know wow. the song, they know all the, the routines wow. and they're, and they're having a blast with it. And I thought, my goodness, like, powerful. Yeah, it's powerful. I mean, if that powerful. doesn't prove that relationships really is the foundation of all learning for kids, I'm for learning that sticks and learning that lasts a lifetime. I mean, here they are years later, still know the whole song, what it what it means, the story behind the song, the 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 the, the gestures and the motions that go that go along with it. It was phenomenal. That guy's amazing. Wow. Yeah, he is. No, so so good. It's so genuine. Yep. So genuine. So genuine. So humble. You know. Um, he, he's, he's been very, very good to me, you know, so definitely folks, you know, check him out at, at rubenspeaking.com. He does good stuff, great stuff, yeah. connects with kids, adults, and captivates an audience, man. I mean, like this brother is able to really, 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 he, he, he digs down deep and, and shares personal experiences to, to let everyone know that, you know what, your experience isn't that much different than someone else's, but he, he makes it relatable and he's great. He's, he's, he's phenomenal. Yeah. Hey, how did you get um, started with the uh, AHA process organization with Root Dr. Sure, Root sure. Well, um, it was it was interesting, and um, we, like most folks, actually wanted uh, Ruby Payne to come and provide some training, workshop, et cetera, for our district. Mm-hmm. And it goes it goes back to what I was saying earlier: is understanding your staff, your families, um, your community, and how can we help everyone get to a place where they understand equity, diversity, cultural competency. So my superintendent and I were having a conversation about it. And I said, you know, if we're going to do this, we need to be mindful of the way that we're going to do it. We need to have an entry point that's going to make people feel safe and not make people feel as though they can't talk about certain topics. And sometimes jumping right into race and ethnicity is a, is a hot button issue and people, people handle it different ways. So I said, what if we look at, look at from social economic standpoint and like look at look at it like that and what about the work of ruby Payne? she said great but is it possible you think we could actually get ruby to come and do the training versus to train the trainers i said i don't know i'll see what i can do so i i i did my research and my due diligence and 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 basically uh connected with her folks at aha and told them our story told them who we were and you know and what we like to do and why we want to do it and was able to get Ruby to come out. And during that time, I was the point person and the mediator through that and kind of uh, worked with Ruby and her staff directly. And then when she came to present, I was her liaison in the district and, and walked around and introduced her folks. And we had a chance to talk. And just like you and I were talking, brother, she had the same similar conversation with me yeah. and was like, was like, Evan, I really would like to talk to you about possibly doing some work at AHA because sounds like you have a lot to share. Um, you have a great message and basically, you know, there's somebody out there or some people out there that could benefit from it and, and want to do that. So, you know, did that. And then we stayed in contact, stayed in touch. And, you know, um, 
and it went from there. And then I, I became a, a consultant, national trainer and certified trainer in emotional poverty. And I'm a, so I provide training for that. Um, and then I also um, can, and also through AHA process, I'm a national consultant. So AHA sends me um, to work with campuses and districts and organizations as well nationally to do that work as well. But it's been phenomenal. And, and I can tell you, um, Ruby is so down to earth. She's a great person, very humble. Yeah. You know, another, another person just like yourself and Ruben and Vernon who are very humble, just willing to reach out, help folks, you know, and genuine. So I, I love, I love what she's doing. I, I love her work and she's, she's been a great person, great mentor to me along the way. You know, you know it really is true that w- that might've been one of the only um, uh, professional development events I've actually had an aha you know, like, you, you, like you can't not in her work, like, you know, you know, when you take the quiz or you read some of the, just the first opening parts of the book or just, you know, maybe her first 30 minutes of speaking is like, oh my God, that's, uh, I get it. Well, yes, there sir. it is. It's so true. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, you know, always, always, you know, very thankful to the people I meet along, along my way, the journey, the people that support me, the folks that, that just give me a chance, you know, because that's what I try to do. And I make sure I try to give back. Right. Because that's what it's all about. It comes full circle. You know, um, I'm always intentional about my work. I'm intentional about my relationships. I'm intentional about the opportunities I provide for my own children to make sure that they understand the value of building relationships and also understand that they have opportunities and access to things that others don't. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're better than they're just different. Yeah. So I always try and f- try to find ways in which they can interact with 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 young people that have different backgrounds than them, that live different places than them, because they need to understand that because that, like I had, can carry them over to adulthood. And hopefully they end, to end up doing that when they get adults and they have children. Yeah, for sure. All right, man, listen, I can't. Uh, my gosh. That's so much. I that that that's probably a three podcasts in one, man. I think you're getting three for one. That, that's a, <laughs> for so sure, much sure, good man. stuff, man. Listen, I really, really appreciate your work, and uh, you, you know, and, and the fact that you're out there in so many different uh, vehicles, um, providing content and information for people in all, in all that you do in the district, on the road, nationally, consulting individuals, man. It's just. Um, it's just phenomenal, and and this is what I love about this profession. There are so many um, just heroic professionals doing the greatest work on the planet, serving other people. I mean, it, it's amazing, and I really appreciate you spending time with me. Thank you. Thank you, Hal. Appreciate it, brother. This has been the Teach Like a Rockstar podcast with Hal Bowman. Subscribe, rate, and share from halbowman.com forward slash podcast.